Hey listeners, a quick note before our show. So of course, just hours after we left the studio on Tuesday afternoon, the New York Times broke a front page story about yet another Facebook breach of trust. This time, it turns out that Facebook was granting other large tech companies special access to users' private data. That included lists of all their friends, even in some cases, their private messages. This was done as part of partnerships that integrated Facebook into those companies' products. For instance, a tool that lets Spotify users message their Facebook friends from within Spotify. This week's episode is actually our last news show before the holidays, although stay tuned because we have a couple great holiday episodes coming up with some of our favorite interviews from the year, questions from listeners. But you can be sure we will address this in the new year as part of our ongoing coverage of the social media reckoning we've all been a part of. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Blazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, December 18th. On today's show, we'll talk about how Taylor Swift used face recognition to surveil the crowd at a recent concert, and whether that's smart, scary, or both. Then we'll welcome to the show Renee DeResta. She's an expert on cybersecurity and online misinformation. DeResta is the lead author of a new report to the Senate Intelligence Committee on exactly how Russian operatives weaponized social media in the 2016 election, the scope of those operations, and why it may be just the beginning of a new era of what she calls global information warfare. That's all coming up on today's If Then. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, we want to talk about a story that first made headlines last week, but it feels like a taste of a future that's worth talking about maybe before it becomes the present. Uh, Rolling Stone reported that the pop star Taylor Swift used facial recognition to check for stalkers at a concert she gave at the Rose Bowl in May. Yeah, this this came out in an uh, article in Rolling Stone late last week uh, that, you know, during a, a Rose Bowl performance. And this kind of stirred a lot of drama because people didn't uh, expect to be surveilled, I suppose, at a Taylor Swift show. I thought it was interesting that people were were deeply concerned about this, actually. Yeah, totally. And, and when I first saw the headline, I thought that they had, like, cameras sweeping over the crowd at the concert. But that actually wasn't quite how it worked. They had a kiosk set up where they were showing scenes from her rehearsals. And so people would walk by the kiosk as they came in to the Rose Bowl, and they would look at this screen. And while they were looking at the screen, there was, unbeknownst to them, a camera that was looking back at them, taking pictures of their face, sending it to a command post 2,000 miles away in Nashville, and then running it against a database uh, to see if any of them were, were one of Taylor Swift's known stalkers. She's had a couple people arrested in the past for stalking her. 
So it's understandable that she would that she would want to know if one of her stalkers was in the crowd, but also I think understandable that people were were uh, a little bit nonplus to have been uh, subjected to this technology without their knowledge or without their consent at a, at a show that they went to. I want people, though, to, to know really clearly that this technology is used without their knowledge and without their consent all the time. And I agree that it should be limited and that, you know, this isn't something that should happen without people's knowledge or consent. But it's by no means the first instance of facial recognition technology being deployed uh, at a stadium. And, and, and increasingly, we're seeing experimentation uh, with, with this type of technology, whether it's cameras, you know, set up at a concert or a basketball game to read people's facial expressions, to better advertise to them. I've, I've read uh, things about this and, and written things about this. Uh, it's certainly something that uh, exists. It's technology that exists. And if it's technology that exists, it's technology that is probably going to be used in some way. That said, it's it's disturbing. And, and I'm glad that this kind of ruffled feathers for folks because we should not have a frictionless relationship with such penetrative, ubiquitous uh, surveillance, especially considering it's going where? <laughs> right. We don't know. Nashville. OK, that's where I'm from. Like, what does that even mean? Who's holding that? What are they doing with that information? Is it something that can be subpoenaed by the police? We don't know. Right. And, and you know, there are states that have laws about how you can't record someone without their permission. But according to our colleague Aaron Mack's post in Slate about this, there are very few states in the United States that have any laws about uh, biometric authentication, um, and particularly when it comes to private businesses like a concert venue. Jay Stanley from the ACLU said it's kind of a wild west out there right now. As long as it's private property, they can take your image and do whatever analytics they want with it, including facial recognition. Yeah, it just it seems like it has to change. And, you know, it's not just activists who are calling for this. We talked to the CEO of a face recognition company who says that it needs to be regulated. We have Microsoft out there now uh, trying to say that face recognition should be regulated and explicitly calling for Congress to act. But still uh, nothing from nothing from Capitol Hill so far. Yeah, there's no like a bill that I'm aware of sitting on the shelf that that Congress members are prepared to rally behind. But there are laws in states uh, that, that that regulate this specifically, particularly in Illinois and Texas. There are facial recognition laws, although companies like Facebook have uh, used NRA like tactics over the past few years to really try to defeat those uh, laws and bring them down. So. You know, it's 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 something that I uh, don't expect to actually get any better. I expect that this technology to become even more ubiquitous and even more widespread and uh, even more frictionless moving forward. Uh, and I hope that we continue to interrogate it when we see instances like this that we don't expect uh, or else it's just going to happen without any interrogation. And that is certainly not a healthy relationship to our technologies. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Renee DiResta, the author of a new report to the Senate Intelligence Committee about Russian misinformation operations in the 2016 election and the coming information world war. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Renee DeResta. She is the Director of Research at New Knowledge, Head of Policy at the nonprofit Data for Democracy, and a Mozilla Fellow in Media, Misinformation, and Trust. She regularly writes and speaks about the role that tech platforms and curatorial algorithms play in the proliferation of disinformation and conspiracy theories. DeResta is the lead author of a new report to the Senate Intelligence Committee on exactly how Russian operatives weaponized social media in the 2016 election, the scope of those operations, and why it may be just the beginning of a new era of what she calls global information warfare. Renee DeResta, welcome to If Then. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we want to start with some of the key findings from your report, uh, or the report that you kind of helped lead with with a lot of other researchers. And one of those is that uh, social media companies underreported or weren't quite forthright with the information that they kind of slowly leaked in dribs and drabs to, to researchers since 2016. And the other is that platforms that are owned by the large companies, namely Instagram owned by Facebook and YouTube owned by Google, played a much larger role than uh, than, than really has been made out uh, in congressional hearings and uh, in investigations and in the media. It seems like these two things may be interconnected in some way, in that people weren't getting the information, not people, but rather investigators, researchers, Congress, the press, weren't getting information uh, from these companies as much as they should have. And then we also really weren't looking into uh, kind of the role of, of some of their subsidiaries. I can probably put some of that in context if you'll let me go back a little bit. So following, 20, following election 2016, uh, there was the beginnings of, uh, of an understanding that perhaps the Russian operation on Twitter, which was sort of known about, had actually extended to other social platforms as well. And so there were researchers, outside researchers, myself, a collection of other people. Jonathan Albright was one of the leading figures mm-hmm. in this. He was one of, the, uh, one of the members of my team. We were kind of scouring the internet looking for evidence uh, of this. At the same time, there were some amazing journalists who were doing the same thing, who uh, one of them, I wish I could remember which paper it was, I think maybe the Daily Beast, wrote an article about how what appeared to be Russian trolls were running the largest Texas secessionist page on Facebook. And I think shortly thereafter, there was another uh, investigation into uh, Black Matters U.S. And so in dribs and drabs, and then funny enough, in the Russian press as well, there started to be this emergence of these these leaks from people who had actually worked for the troll factory uh, saying like, yeah, we totally took on the American election and here's how we did it. Right. And, and so those of us who were trying to find these breadcrumbs to get a sense of the scope of the operation – I was also at the time uh, beginning to communicate with Senator Warner and some of the other senators about what became increasingly obvious was like a structural problem with social networks. So I met up with Tristan Harris, who, of course, talks about Mm -hmm. the impact on like on people, individuals, and and their experience of social networks, and Guillaume Cheslow, who was a one of the people who created the um, the YouTube recommendation engine, uh, Sandy Parakilis, who'd been at Facebook and kind of came out as a whistleblower, saying you know they didn't necessarily always do the best job with their data. Uh, so there were these two parallel threads. One was disinformation research. The other was uh, sort of social network accountability for what increasingly seemed like misinformation, polarization, radicalization. And those threads were, you know, we were really 
kind of pulling on both of them in 2017. And as the evidence of Russian interference became more and more obvious, uh, we began to say, hey, maybe we should have some hearings on this. Right. You know, one thing that really struck out in uh, your report was that we're not just talking about memes and, you know, activist groups and, and DMs here. We're talking about very, very detailed operations uh, to really come off like faux activist or advocacy groups. I mean, you you talked about uh, in the report how there were e-commerce sites selling things like sex toys, the recruitment of Americans uh, to work with uh, Russian agents through job listings, free uh, self-defense classes, the solicitation of uh, photos for a calendar of women, uh, offering counseling to followers on a page called Army of Jesus, right, for people who are struggling with porn addiction. I'm curious uh, why they went through so much kind of work to appear authentic here. Was this level of uh, posturing necessary for the Russian operation? Because it's just fascinating how detailed it was. I think that's I think it's actually the detail that that makes it popular. So it's a, you know, maybe a chicken egg problem. We don't have a ton of insight into how many people converted to follow the page and when. But if you think about your experience on social media, you engage with what is effectively like a media brand. That's what they were turning. A lot of these pages were really masquerading as media brands. They had a website. They had merch. They had um, a podcast. You know, some of them had podcasts. They had all of the things that, you know, you would think of when you think about like, oh, I like this media property. It's independent media. They were very adamant about that. We didn't trust the media, so we became it was the tagline for Black Matters. (laughs) Uh, Even though it's kind of grammatically wonky, they had a huge banner announcing the launch. Um, They had banners announcing we hit 100,000 subscribers on our site. You know, it was really growing, uh, growing an ecosystem. And in order to do that, authenticity really wins the day, right? People follow brands because they feel an emotional resonance, a connection. Um, the level of detail, the way you communicate, that stuff does matter. And so if you think about it as a, a social media marketing agency building up small brands, that's effectively what was happening here. And so some of the revelations in these reports have sparked a backlash from the NAACP, which is actually calling for a boycott of Facebook uh, on the grounds that that a lot of this Russian, Russian disinformation had targeted the black community in particular. Can you talk about why that might have been? and what effect it may have had? It's important to understand that the topics that they picked were based on real pre-existing social divisions. So they didn't create rifts, they exploited them. And there is no way to deny the deep struggles and challenges that America has had with race for decades, uh, including as this operation was taking place from 2014 or so till, uh, till now, um, things like the Black Lives Matter movement trying to achieve change, um, the sort of social debates that that, has, uh, that that has led to, the uncomfortable feelings that that has brought up. So as this happens, they are able to, to latch on to that and to increase the feelings of alienation and grievances among people who have legitimate feelings of alienation and grievances, but to kind of double down on it. You see a lot of, uh, if you look at the far right content, you see a lot of um, there's pre-existing rage and they really work to amplify that rage. Um, The black community themes of alienation really deeply leaning into the alienation. This country isn't for us. Right. And so they take things that are already there and they work with what they have because there's a saying that the best propaganda is, you know, 90 percent true. Right. And, And that's because it has to Uh, If it's easily discredited, people dismiss it. So it has to feel real. It has to feel resonant. 
I think the reason that they went so hard for the black community with the suppression narratives is that, candidly, the black community is a powerhouse when it comes to voter turnout, right? They, they turn out, they vote. They have historically voted very strongly in alignment with the Democratic candidate. So it's almost a recognition of the power of the community um, and a recognition of the uh, deep underlying rifts in our society that that is the reason why they would lean so hard into targeting the black community. And so one of the questions that has come up in the wake of your report is, well, did this swing the election? I mean, that's a question that people keep coming back to. <laughs> but I think I think you're kind of tired of that question, right? I, you know, I don't have an answer to that question, right? And and nothing in my nothing in the data set that I was provided would give me the answer to that question. So I um I think there's a couple things here. First, you know, in as far as like is the only thing worth investigating whether or not Russia flipped an election? I would say the answer is no, right? I mean, I was talking to somebody in law enforcement, and the way he put it was uh, attempted murder is still a crime. You know, (laughs) you still go and investigate it even if they didn't get it done. There was an assault on American democracy. There was a foreign adversary who spent three years manipulating and targeting American individuals, pretending to be American, interfering in social conversations, political conversations. That is something that we need to understand. We need to understand how they did it, if only to detect it faster in the future, because they don't seem to be, you know, there's no indication that they're going to go away. As far as they're concerned, it was successful. They, they re-upped their budget. Um, so I do, I, I wouldn't say frustration, because I understand that everybody would like an answer to that question. When we think about impact, I think it's also important to look at, did this change attitudes within the community? Did it shift the Overton window? Was the propaganda effective? It continues to perpetuate. It, it continues to be propagated in the communities that uh, that it targeted. And I think that that's in part naivety, right? Like who goes and looks at a meme and thinks, oh, this is Russian propaganda? I do all the time now, but <laughs> but most people don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's uh, this, this content is still out there because on the, there is a kernel of truth in a lot of it. And that's what makes it such a challenging conversation. Yeah, and it's also like effective propaganda. It's not something that you really see the the whites of its eyes. You know, if it, it's it's hard to know if something is effective when you put a piece of information out there. It's broadcasting, right? So you know, one uh, one question I have is is the, about the calling this kind of an information warfare. Is this is a a, a kind of phrase that I I see batted around uh, a lot in these conversations. One hesitancy I have with it is that by calling it, you know, war, putting it in that militaristic context, it could open the door to increased, you know, surveillance of social media platforms uh, that that could potentially, you know, affect communities that are already over surveilled, particularly by police that are closely watching the communications activities, mm-hmm. say, of, of black American communities. And so what are your thoughts on this kind of framing of information warfare? Is it useful? Are there are there pitfalls? You know, I um I wrote that essay on the digital Maginot line, and I and I used the metaphor of war in there, and it took literally six months <laughs> for me to feel confident releasing that piece. Yeah. In part because I really worried about the the terminology and and the, and the war metaphor. What I would say to that is that they think of it as a war, and and that is where if if you read the the indictments, or if you go and you read Project Lockta, the um the way that they describe what they're doing. This is not a, um, oh, we're just going to mess around with some Americans, right? They have real strategic objectives. This is a toolkit that they have, and this is the framing that they use. And so I got to thinking as I, as I read more of this, or even if you look at um, kind of domestic trolling groups, they'll use the phrase meme war, right? The great meme wars of 2016. <laughs> so there's this, there's, there's this sense among like people who 
use these tactics and believe in the power of the outcomes that they can affect, and they are using terms like war, and then the rest of us are kind of over here talking about like, well, it's some shit posters on the internet. And and there's a there's a kind of a, a real divide there in, in how we're thinking about it. You know, we're treating it as like, oh, this is just a problem of uh, of governance. We just have to do a better job, you know, detecting this stuff earlier, as opposed to thinking about ways to deter it, which is which is the framework that you would use if you were thinking about it more uh, in, in militaristic terms. So I absolutely understand um, the reservations, and and I and I, I feel them acutely myself. At the same time. I don't think that we're well served um, by pretending that these are just sort of disparate attacks that happen to look the same way when they really do have, in many countries, the goal of regime change, right? Yeah, I also had a, a few reservations about the use of war, although I can I can understand it. Uh, I mean, one thing that happens in wartime is that you might suspend normal uh, laws or normal civil liberties or that sort of thing. And I, and I, I would worry if that's one of the implications of it. But I, I, I see your broader point that this is, this is a long-term thing. This is a, a multi, you know, many states are involved in it. It's just going to keep growing. Um, it's not a one-off um, and it's something that we have to be prepared for. I wanted to talk a little bit about your, your other experience studying misinformation and, and virality and network effects on social media and what it is about the social networks that made them so vulnerable to this. I'm curious, you know, whether you think that they're, were they the victims of this or were they culpable? And, and what about the social networks uh, enabled this uh, Russian campaign to, to be so effective? So I think that there's a structure, you know, our information ecosystem evolved in a certain way, and you can trace back um, how the platforms kind of grew and acquired other companies, and really sort of we amassed a, a, an information ecosystem that's largely controlled by five kind of big entities. I think the interesting challenge of that is it, it does kind of create these ready-made audi- audiences for propagandists. Simultaneously, they know quite a lot about the users on their platforms because they're uh, they're serving them ads, and so they are gathering data about um, those of us who use the platforms constantly for the purpose of selling ads, but then also for the purpose of making recommendations. So they have to keep you on site in order to continue to serve you content. Uh, and as part of that, this is where curatorial algorithms come into play, some of the stuff that, that I talk about a lot, which is what are the, you know, we can talk about the tactics of the IRA all day long, but what is the information environment that generate that leads to those tactics? Why do those tactics work? And I think that we have this idea of mass consolidation of audiences, precision targeting, and then gameable algorithms. When you have these curatorial algorithms, um, particularly Early, you know, in in 2015, 2016, you might remember what a disaster uh, Twitter trending was. Uh, Prior to Twitter really taking into account things like quality of accounts, any botnet could make anything trend and regularly did. And so this is where the architecture of the information ecosystem just lends itself to influence operations, in, in part because they are producing content with the goal of virality. They're producing highly emotionally resonant content. Uh, they're oftentimes really working hard to kind of own their keywords and make it so that when you search, you know, when you search for a term, they're what you find. And this is just, you know, this is how the environment has evolved. When we talk about um, the victim, the idea of the tech company is victim, there is, I would say, they did not expect this. And this is not necessarily the kind of alignment um, that one would expect, right? Who's thinking about how is Russian intelligence going to gain my platform? 
But where I do kind of assign some culpability is that starting in around 2015, we were talking about ISIS and we were looking at other malign entities, terrorist organizations that had begun to kind of co-opt the platform. And if you remember the conversation around that time, people were really like, "Uh oh, what if we kick ISIS off Twitter? I mean, who's next? Right. So it was framed as this this slippery slope. It was binary. It was like either we let them stay on here or we're, you know, we've just moved into an environment of mass censorship. And so there were some, um, you know, we, we really erred on the side of, of um not moderating. And the, the government and the tech platforms really weren't collaboratively working together in any way. This was relatively soon after the Snowden revelations. They didn't want to be seen as cooperating with the government. Right, right. So there was this challenge. There was this sort of like um, this moment, this almost like inflection point where we could have taken the time to look more deeply at this stuff. But it was just seen as like, well, this is just one random terrorist organization and not a big deal. When, as we look back at that, if you look back at that now, you'll realize that while that was happening, the Russian operation was already underway. And if you look at DARPA, right, which the Defense uh, Advanced Research Projects team that its job is to um, prevent strategic surprise in in this case, uh, they were were running studies looking at whether propaganda on social platforms was going to be a problem starting in 2012. So there were sort of indications that maybe we should have been thinking about this and weren't. I think it's really hard, and I'm, I'm not really interested in like kind of pointing the finger of blame back. I think where the finger of blame is warranted is actually in how they comported themselves through 2017, uh, when there was indications that you know when this became kind of abundantly clear, and we still had that kind of hedging from Facebook as opposed to uh, being immediately transparent about it. I think they've come a long way since then, but that was a, that was a particularly kind of tense time? How do you how do you make this behemoth company accept accountability for what happened? Yeah. So what is your recommendation at this point? I mean, as you say, that there's been a lot of movement in terms of what social media platforms are willing to do these days in, in moderating, in uh, working with the government, in taking the advice of researchers or, um, or experts. But is there more that's needed? I mean, are, are we in a better place for 2020 than we were for 2016? I think we are. Uh, I think we are because I think some of the um, the calls for multi-stakeholderism from you know myself and others have actually been resonant in some ways, right? So we had a great example. The investigation project that I did was outside experts working with the government to understand what happened. The sort of third piece of that is really creating this multi-stakeholder system that incorporates the tech companies and that rather than being backward looking where we're all still you know, trying to suss out what happened in 2016, that informed by these findings, we say, these are the, this, this is how this investigation went. This is how it could have been improved. This is how we can structure it to be forward looking and to find things uh, that are going to be a problem in 2020. I think that 2018 midterms were a almost like a pilot project for that. I know I was in touch with, you know, I could back channel things to tech platforms. Hey, look at this bot. Hey, look at this thing. Uh, and they were very receptive to it. So we had moved past that um, that period of, uh, okay, thanks, whatever. And we were solidly in the realm of, um, this is great. Thank you for the, you know, our team will get right on this kind of thing. So that's, that's where I, I hope that, um, we kind of formalize some structures to, to kind of continue on the positive work of 2018. All right. Renee DeResta, thank you so much for joining us on If Then. Thanks for having me. One more quick break, and then we'll do Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we've seen on the web this week.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week? My tab this week is one that I'm not done reading, but I think still falls into the category of tabs because it's one that's still open for yeah, me. Yeah, your and tab is finish. not closed. Uh, it's in Logic Magazine, which is one of my favorite uh, imprints about kind of critical technology studies and explorations. Uh, it's from the issue Play, their newest issue. And the article is entitled My Stepdad's Huge Dataset by Gustavo Turner. Uh, and it is about big data and porn and about how data and large amounts of data that are collected from people who watch porn is reshaping the porn industry and the way uh, porn is presented, the way media talks about sexuality. It's about concentration of power, people who pay for subscriptions for the weirdest things, therefore uh, not just weirdest, but perhaps, you know, um, most fringe things, whether it's you know, stuff about incest and and uh, really kind of uh, faux pas topics, uh, you know, the fact that people are willing to pay for that, that causing uh, the popularity of, of, of that type of content to surge, uh, even if it's not what most people necessarily want. So uh, I'm not done reading it. I super look forward to finishing it, though, because porn is such a big part of the Internet and it's something that and it's something that we don't uh, talk about a lot. Yeah, it really is. It really remains one of the undercovered parts of the internet and and underexamined. Um, and maybe that'll change in the in the coming years. I don't know. Um, but there is still this sort of taboo um, in talking about it, writing about it, even though so much internet activity is is happens on porn sites. Will, uh, what is your tab that you cannot close this week? All right, my tab this week comes from a site I had never heard of before. Somebody flagged it on Twitter. I clicked through, and I'm glad that I did. The site is called The Pudding, and its little tagline is that it creates data-driven visual essays. It has a Patreon that says, Each story in The Pudding represents a few weeks of the author's life spent researching, analyzing, and coding a culturally rich topic. The one that I bumped into is called Population Mountains. It's by someone named Matt Daniels. It says, this is a story about how to perceive the population of cities. It fascinated me because I'm somebody who, ever since I was a kid, I would would read those lists like in encyclopedias or or now in Wikipedia of what are the world's largest cities. Um, And the lists were evocative, but you couldn't really picture anything about the place just from seeing the raw numbers. And the number of megacities in the world, of course, has exploded in the past 20 years or so. And what this visualization does is it kind of brings home that po- that population explosion and, and the scale and the scope of these cities and population centers around the world in a way that you can't get just from looking at the, at the raw numbers. So it shows wherever there's more people in a given square mile or whatever, you'll get a taller peak in this visualization. And so 
downtown New York and Manhattan looks like skyscrapers because there are, there's such population density there. If you go to Washington, D.C. or Atlanta, it looks more like rolling hills because people aren't quite as concentrated. Singapore looks like a profusion of, of skyscrapers. Um, and you can also compare cities and regions side by side in a way that that I haven't seen possible elsewhere. So like there's one visualization that shows California side by side with the island of Java. And Java just makes California look like a, an empty desert. It makes California look like a ghost state uh, compared to these, these cities like Jakarta and Bandung. Um, it shows uh, how Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo dwarfs Paris in population size. But it, again, it's not just the size, but you sort of get a feel for what these cities look like or what the population density is shaped like that I've never seen before. It was really striking to me, and there's, there's just a lot to take from it. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Uh, I am really excited to, to dig into that. Thank you so much, Will. Yeah, so the URL for that site is pudding.cool. Um, you could also probably find it on Google by searching Population Mountains. All right, that does it for our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Thanks so much to everybody who wrote in in response to our questions. Uh, we will have we will feature some of your responses on a forthcoming episode. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest, Renee DeResta. You can find her on Twitter at NoUpside. Highly recommend that follow. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate it, not only because we like to be praised, but because it helps other people discover the show. Without those reviews, nobody would find it. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez and Cody Hamilton for engineering here in Berkeley, California. And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week.